It's perhaps a little bit of a uh, unconventional thing to do an altar call before I've even said anything at all. Um, but there was a small request for tape to hold your eyes open. And so if you need tape, it's right here at the altar. You can just come up, come up and grab a couple pieces and, you know, we get whatever help we can. If you're not into the tape variety, um, we do have Dignity Roasters coffee ready for you. Um, so please make yourself at home. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to our neighbors. I'm glad to be together with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael, and we have been in a series, uh, or we started a series last week called uh, Passover slash Passion, um, and we observed that, uh, sorry, one moment. <laughs> we observed that uh, w- when uh, Jesus was alive, there were a bunch of people that really were not big fans of him, uh, particularly the religious leaders at the time. They were frustrated that he had a bigger following than they did, and they were concerned that he was going to steal all of their notoriety, and so they conspired together to kill him. However, they, the, the, they conspired together to kill him at the time of a Jewish festival called Passover. Now, initially, we observed last week, initially they weren't going to do it at the, at the time of the festival because who wants to do an execution at Christmas time? Like, it just seems like it's going to put a damper on things for us to, like, have this criminal trial. And so they're like, yeah, this probably isn't a good time to do that. But we saw that Judas went to them and said, hey, I'll deliver him up on a silver platter. And so they decided to change their plans and to go ahead with this trial and this execution of Jesus at the same time that Passover was going on. And so there seems to be something that God wanted to wanted us to see that this, this crucifixion happened at the same time as this Passover. And so we want to take a look at uh, the Passover, and see if there's something that we might learn about Jesus as we're looking at some of this this uh, this old not old this this religious tradition that that he had. Um, it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about it that you we could have gotten the impression perhaps that Jesus was caught off guard by this that that Jesus wasn't expecting Judas to betray him, um, and it and I was reminded that three times, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, there's three different occasions where Jesus says, "Hey guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem," and they're like, "Great, that sounds awesome." He's like, "We're going to go to Jerusalem, and people are going to hate me, and they're going to kill me." And he's they're like, "I don't understand. What do you mean?" Um, and he says, yeah, well, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to come back from the dead. And they just did not understand. So at least three times before it happened, Jesus says, hey, this is what's going to happen. Judas ends up just kind of serving him up on a silver platter. But all of this was according to God's plan. It's really clear to me that we should be, as we talk about Jesus and about his crucifixion, about his resurrection, that, that we should probably hear echoes and overtones of this holiday of Passover. And so that's what we're trying to do in this series is kind of take these things apart um, and, and take a closer look at them. Um, <laughs> I need to reset. Uh, would you, uh, it's our habit together to pray the disciples prayer at the beginning of the week. So it's a brand new week. I don't know what happened last week. You don't have to live last week ever again. And so it's a new week. It's a new day. God's mercies are new today. And so we're going to start off on the right foot um, by praying together. And this is the model of prayer that Jesus left for us. It's not a magic prayer. There's no uh, spell involved in this. But he said, when you pray, pray like this. 
I'm kind of naive enough to just copy Jesus. And so if you'd like to pray together with me out loud, you're welcome to, to pray out loud with me. The words are on the screen. At the very least, I'd ask for you to bow your hearts and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So if, uh, if you're new, you may be asking, okay, so we've got Passion Week, you've got the, the crucifixion of Jesus, we've got Passover, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm new to all of this. What, what is Passover? What are we talking about here? Um, it was a commemorative holiday that, that God gave to uh, the people of Israel. They go by a couple of different names. Uh, I was reminded this week uh, to maybe bring some clarity to this. They go by a couple different names. They are the people of Israel. They are the descendants of Jacob. They are the Hebrew people. And they are the Jews. That, those four names all refer to the same group of people. And God gave them this holiday to remember when he delivered them from slavery under, under Egypt and brought them out and brought them into a new land. And so he does that uh, through some miraculous signs. He wages war against the false gods of Egypt. We know those as the plagues. And the final plague, the one that kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back uh, or Pharaoh's heart, however you want to look at that, um, was uh, the, the killing of the firstborn. So last week, we talked about the firstborn and what, were the, what was the significance of that. Um, and you can catch up on the, the podcast, or you can catch up on our YouTube channel uh, if you'd like to, to hear more about the firstborn. Um, but if, this is, if, if we're looking at the Bible and we lay all of the characters, all the generations that are explicitly talked about in the Bible out, we have about 4,000 years um, that's not, that's not like the Bible doesn't tell us everything that happened. It tells us what we need to know about God. And so I'm not saying that, that, that that's the limits of uh, creation history. But when we're talking about the biblical narrative, we've got this. And right there in the middle of, of our chart there, around 1500, there's a marker. That's the Exodus. That's what we're going to be talking about as we turn and navigate in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Um, that's where about where we're going to be, 1500 BC, about 1500 years before Jesus, the little baby over on this side. Okay, so navigate with me to Exodus chapter 12, um, and we'll do some reading. What's gone on in this story, and we we spent several weeks talking about uh, the first chapters of Exodus in a series called Who Are We? Um, but Jesus has this family uh, descended from Jacob, the, the, the nation of Israel, or the people of Israel, they're not a nation yet, um, that is blessed by God. God wants to walk with them in a special way, um, and, he, and he provides for them uh, in a time of a famine. He provides food for them um, by moving them into Egypt. And he had provided food for Egypt too, so he moves them in there. And the longer they're there, the more God blesses them. And the more God blesses them, the more they make the Egyptians uncomfortable. And the more the Egyptians get uncomfortable, they decide to then uh, enslave and attack 
the Israelite people. And so they begin killing their children. Um, they put them to forced labor. Um, and then they take, away, uh, they take away the materials that they need to accomplish the forced labor that they're making them do. So they double their work. And the more, God, and the more they are oppressed, the more God blesses them. And the more God blesses them, the more they are oppressed. And that's the story until finally God says, I'm going to deliver you. He raises up a guy named Moses and his brother Aaron to come and talk to Pharaoh on behalf of God. And that's, and that's what we're looking at here in Exodus chapter 12. Um, there are some blue Bibles that are going to be tucked under the chairs in front of you. And if you want to follow along, we're going to flip through and read a couple of long passages. So it might be helpful for you to follow along. And it's on page 67. Uh, Exodus 12 is on page 67 in these blue Bibles. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's households, or their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So we'll pause there. Um, so, yeah, uh, if you're super into animals, a lot of them are going to die in the sermon today. So I'm just going to give you a heads up if that's something you're uncomfortable with. Um, because we've got, we've got this really interesting picture. God comes to these people, and this is before the last plague. So he's prepping them before, before the last plague happens. There's these things that we're going to do, and they don't know yet that they're going to do this, they're going to do this meal in remembrance of this event every year, but, but God's kind of unfolding it for them for the first time. He says, we're going to do this. And so what you're going to do is you're going to take a lamb, and you're going to move it into your house, for four days. So on the 10th day of the month, you're going to go and pick a lamb. You're going to bring it into your house. It's going to live with you for four days. And then at twilight, on the, on the 14th day, everybody kills them together. This sounds like a party, doesn't it? Yeah, we're excited about this? <clears throat> no, it's a little bit uncomfortable for us, right? We're like, why do we got to kill something? Um, why, what, what is happening here? And, and the question is a big question. It's a significant question. Um, and there is a significant debate about the nature of animal sacrifice and whether or not it was God's idea. And so I'm, I'm, I'm aware that there's a big hole right there and you're watching me walk around the edge of it. Like I know that there are some things to address there, but I don't really have the time if we're going to get to where we're getting to. But let me, if I can just give you one simple answer and, and I'll, I'm going to build off of that. The simple answer is this. You and I have a, an inflated view of how good we are. You and I also have a deflated view of how harmful sin is. So we live in an imperfect world. We're comfortable with sin. We know that none of us is perfect. We all make mistakes. And so because that's normal for us, we think it's not harmful and what God is trying to teach the Israelites is that sin causes a, a complete break between us and God. 
Like sin is a big deal every time, all the time, and sin doesn't get fixed unless something dies. So that's the nature of sacrifice. And whether and 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 whether we want to talk about how it developed in the garden and how it goes up through the rest of uh, history, here you've got explicit instructions from God, kill something. We're going to take this lamb and we're going to kill this lamb and it's going to be applied to you in a specific way. Okay, so we can get into the nuances of how that works, but, but here in the text that we've got, we've got to deal with the fact that God says to kill something. All right? And so he says to kill a lamb. Um, he is doing this, and he's saying that this is going to reorient your whole calendar. So the way that you've kind of operated, like now this event is going to be your new year. So we're going to start the new year in, in April now. We're not going to start it in January. And you're going to start the new year with a celebration that's going to involve these lambs. You're going to take them into your home. You're going to watch them. It's got to be a lamb without blemish. So this isn't just like uh, you stick it in the corner and leave it alone. Like this is, uh, you got to watch it. You got to make sure it's not limping anywhere. Uh, you're making sure that the coat is good. You know, your kids are going to pet it. You got to keep the kids from riding the lamb around the house because, you know, that's going to be a problem. It's got to be without blemish. And so you've got this period of kind of watching the lamb. Um, it's, it's kind of, a, a, but it's, it's on death row. Like you brought it into your home to watch it so that you can make sure that it's an appropriate sacrifice to kill it. Now, real quick, to the Christians, you guys have heard Romans 12, present therefore your bodies a living sacrifice. The living sacrifice is that idea of I present my life to God to be inspected. And this is the inspection period of four days. That is our spiritual act of worship, is to open up our lives and say, look at it and tell me what I need to change. And so, this, so that's for Christians. So back into, into Exodus, you've got these lambs, and you're going to eat them, but you want to eat them in such a way that you don't have a bunch of leftovers. Like, you're on purpose, want to make sure that you, can, that you only kill as much as you're going to be able to eat. And so, this becomes not just a family event, it becomes a neighborhood event. If you are a smaller household, like, and you're not going to be able to eat a whole lamb by yourself, then you guys go together and you party together in somebody else's house. Like, it becomes a, a community event, a community, um, a, a community sacrifice. This isn't just going to be for you and your family, and you guys do it your way, and you guys do it your way, and you guys do it your way. We're all kind of doing the same thing, and so if you need to come over to Jeff's house, then Jeff's going to have you over, Right? And if Jeff needs a place to stay, then Ashley's going to invite him in. Like, like this, so we're all going to do this together, right? Across, across the pews, so to speak, right? Jeff and Ashley, you guys know each other? Okay, you, you do now. Congratulations. <clears throat> all right, so, uh, yeah, it's a community expression. Here's the thing. What God's doing here is he's putting a mark on people that's going to be definitive for them. They're going to, this is going to be a keystone for their identity. What God's getting ready to do is going to be a keystone of their identity. They're going to do it every year. So the same feelings that you might feel if I say Christmas is canceled. The same feelings you might feel if I were to say, hypothetically, Christmas is canceled. <laughs> uh, 
would be the same thing they would feel if you were to say Passover is canceled, that you're not going to kill this lamb, right? This is part of who you are, all right? So do we, like we today, do we define ourselves by God's work of salvation? Do we look at the thing that God has done in our lives to save us and we say that is the defining characteristic of my life? Every, every other decision I'm going to make is going to go through the lens of God has saved me. And that's what we mean when we say we put Jesus first. Are we defined by God's work of salvation? So, we've got a lamb. Uh, it's cute, a little bit of dorbs, right? Um, but we're going to kill it, okay? But this, this picture is going to be something that gets picked up. Because these people that God is now showing his mercy to, that he's going to deliver them out of slavery. He's going to, he's going to we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, he's going to deliver them out from the Egyptians. They're going to walk through miraculously on dry ground through a body of water. And then that body of water is going to be used to destroy and decimate the Egyptian army. Like their salvation is, is happening right now. And I have reason to believe that as they were walking through that body of water on dry land, they had Egyptian idols in their pockets. And they get to where God is going, is taking them, and they've been delivered from something awful, but they trust the things back there more than they trust where God is leading them. And so over and over again, throughout their history, God's going to bless them and give them a peaceful land. He's going to put them in a place of security, but that security is going to cause them to be complacent, and their complacency is going to lead to sin. In their sin, they're going to cry out to God and say, God, or in their sin, God's going to let somebody come over them and put them under slavery again. And they're going to be like, this is what we were delivered out of. God, will you save us again? And so he's going to raise up somebody who's going to deliver them from their slavery. And then God's going to deliver them into security. And when they're secure, they get complacent. And I would feel really, really like I would want to laugh at them, except that I do the same thing. And that's the story of these people. And finally, God's going to say, look, y'all are sheep. You're not real smart. You're just focused on what's in front of you. You're trying to eat the grass that's right here. You're not paying attention to any of the wolves that are around you. In fact, you're running to the wolves, and you're expecting the wolves to save you, and you're surprised that the wolves are gnawing on your neck. Y'all are not smart. So God's going to send a couple hundred years later to this people who have these cycles a prophet named Isaiah. Now, we zoomed in a little bit on our timeline, so uh, we're looking at, we've still got 1500, which is Moses and the Exodus. Um, and then we're going to zoom in in the middle of that. Um, we got a prophet named Isaiah, and he's going to prophesy around 750 B.C. So ideally, these people have been celebrating this Passover meal, killing this lamb every year for hundreds of years now. Like this is a tradition. And Isaiah is going to show up and he's going to use this to explain to them. Some, he's going to use something they know to teach them something that they don't know. Okay? So, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus in chapter 52. It's on page 770 in the Blue Bibles. I cheated and put a bookmark this week. Isaiah chapter 52, page 770 in the Blue Bibles. Now, if you're looking at the timeline, this is 750 B.C., So this is 750 years 
before Jesus is born. So for today, if, if we were to think about 750 years ago, we'd be in the year 1275. Anybody know what the headlines were in 1275? Yeah, I don't, I don't even have a marker. That's before America was a thing, right? So this is 750 years before Jesus was born, and yet we're going to read this and go, oh my gosh, like that's totally him. And we're, and, but he's, and he's going to write it in such a way that it's almost as though it's already been completed. He's talking about the future, but it's so confident about the future, he writes it as though it's past tense. And he, and he talks about a servant that God's going to send who's going to be one sheep amongst a flock of sheep. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understood. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be a counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 750 years before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah says, hey, there's, there's a guy that's coming. He's not going to glow in the dark. 
He's, he's not going to have a halo. He's not going to be particularly shiny. Like He's just going to look like a normal dude. Had no former majesty that we should look at him. Probably the Jesus guy in The Chosen is a little bit too handsome to be Jesus. Just average Joe. You'd walk by him and, and wouldn't even notice. And he was despised and rejected by men. His, na- his name is a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And he'll be a man who stands trial. Like He's going to stand in a room where people hurl false accusations at him and about him and say that he said things that he didn't say and say that he did things that he didn't do. And like a lamb before the slaughter, he keeps his mouth shut and lets them say what they want to say. Because he knows it's his path to walk to be crushed. He'll lay down his life. One sheep for the many. Are we willing to allow someone else to take our guilt? I don't know that this is a question I would have asked as a younger man. But there's something that happens to us as we grow up where we're like, no, 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 I got to pay for this. Y'all, y'all can forgive me all you want, but I got to live with myself. Like, I got to pay for this. Are we willing to allow someone else to take our guilt? It's not fair. It's not fair for God to look on somebody who uh, was sinless. How, does it, how do they put it? I'm not seeing it on the page. Somebody who who was not a liar to die for liars. It's not fair for God to look at somebody who had not done wickedly to die for wicked people. And yet, he says, this is the way. Are we willing to allow someone else to take our guilt? There's another story in Scripture that you, you may have heard of. Uh, Charlie Brown is really good at telling it. Um, but the angels talk about uh, showing up to some shepherds in a couple hundred years from when Isaiah is prophesying. And he comes to a town. See, see this, this Passover thing was actually the start of something big. So, so what God is doing is he's, he's uh, slowly unrolling things. He says, you guys are going to kill one lamb a year. Um, but he says, my presence is going to go with you when you go into the land. And so when my presence resides in you, you've got to take special care that I don't burn you up. So in the same way where like, we acknowledge that the sun has power, but we also put on sunscreen, God says, when you come to me, you need to know that I am holy and you are not. And there needs to be some protocol into how you come before me. We might get mad at the sun for being the sun, but we also like, you know, put on a long sleeve shirt if we know we're going to be mowing, right? In the same way, God said there's going to be a covering. And so one of, the, one of the ways that you guys, you as a nation, are going to cover is you're going to have an offering every morning and every evening. 365 days a year times two. Somebody else will have to do the math for me. You're going to have an offering, a burnt offering. It's going to be a lamb. So suddenly, how many lambs do you need? You, th- you started with one lamb a year, and now how many do we need in a year? 
All right, we need almost a thousand lambs. If I can round up, can I do that? So where are we going to get these lambs? They have to be a lamb, they have to be a year old, and they have to be without blemish. So suddenly, there's going to be a need for a bunch of lambs at a specific amount of time all year long. We need a constant supply. And these are not like Walmart commodities. You can't just walk up and grab one in cellophane and just take it home. Like, this is an animal, right? We've got to have a place to care for it, got a place to raise it. And so there becomes a cottage industry where um, people are collaborating together and trying to raise lambs specifically for this sacrifice that's going to be sunscreened because God resides among his people. Okay? And God goes to, he sends angels to this town where this cottage industry is raised up, where all of the people in town, the business of the town is raising lambs for the sacrifice. And he comes to the shepherds who understood that, that, that there's, uh, there's lambs that need to be sacrificed, and that's their whole job. And he says, hey, I'm going to send a son to you who's going to be a king. And the way that you're going to know that you've got the right baby, you're going to go into town, and there might be five babies born that night, but you're going to go into town, you know that there's going to be one baby, and that's the one that I'm talking about. It's the one that you wrapped up as though it were a newborn lamb for the sacrifice. Because the key principle was that the lamb had to be unblemished. So if you're birthing lambs knowing that you're going to have to give them as a sacrifice, you're going to take extra care to make sure you don't bonk their noggin. And so when these lambs were born in the city of Bethlehem, they would wrap them up in a certain type of cloth, a word that gets translated as swaddling cloths. And it was unusual to wrap humans in them, but there was one baby that got wrapped in the lamb cloth. And his name was Jesus. Born a sacrifice. From birth. And he had a life laid out for him that he was going to walk through. A hard life. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Despised by those he came to save. And he would be crushed. And God tells us he's crushed for the sins of many, for all who would come to him. And by his submission to that execution, God paid the debt for many. And the way that we know that that check cleared the bank is he came back from the dead. Every other lamb that was ever sacrificed, it only had one shot. And guess what? It didn't, it didn't do the whole job. Because we had to do another one next year. And we had to do another one in the evening. And we had to do another one in the morning. But Jesus was killed. And his payment was done in full. And we know that that check cleared the bank because he came back from the dead. And if you want to walk away from, from Jesus, if you want to walk away from Christianity, if, you, if you're like, this church thing, I'm not super sure about it, I don't really know where to go, like, the only question you have to answer is, did Jesus come back from the dead? 
Like if you if you if if you want to talk about all the Bible stuff and there's some weird stuff in here, I'm not debating that. But the the question that you have to answer is, did Jesus come back from the dead? Because if he came back from the dead, then what he said was true. Because he promised year or he promised on the way to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to come back from the dead. And if and I can say a lot of things, but I can't make myself come back from the dead. And so if he said it said it three times and then it happened in the time and the way that he said it was going to happen, then maybe he has something to teach us about how to live. And maybe he's some, he has something to show us about who God is, that he would come and submit himself to that kind of a death at the hands of people who were lying about him to his face and spitting on him and beating him and mocking him and his ability to know anything. The one who like made physics out of his imagination was mocked. People would blindfold him and smack him and say, who hit you? Of course he knew who hit you. He made your DNA. And he submitted to that suffering as a lamb. Because God sometimes uses things that we know to teach us things that we don't know. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see if we get done on time today. Uh, Jesus, Jesus had 12, 12 followers that were real close to him. Um, and, and one of his best friends and his followers was a guy named John. And after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, he goes back to heaven. And, and, and John, uh, John gets an opportunity to look into the future. And it's a little bit crazy. We're, we're going to get a little bit weird. So if you need the tape, the tape is still here at the altar. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, it's on page 1277 in the Blue Bibles. John has, has, has the privilege of, of, of being able to look into the future and see the end of all things. And he gets to see it in such a way that, like, it's, it's crazy. God has to, God has to give him, uh, help him to see things that he can understand to show him something that he has no way of comprehending. Like, when I, if, if I were to try to imagine uh, somebody from, like, 1900, if they could have a, a window into 2023... And they saw all these people talking in the black boxes. Like, it would not, would not compute. Like, what does this mean? Why are they attached to them? <laughs> right? And so John, like from ancient times, gets to look forward into the future. And so God gives him, uh, lets him see it in such a way that he can begin to grasp it. And so this is what he sees in chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, we're in God's throne room, a scroll written within and on the back. It's written front and back, which is unusual, but it was sealed with seven seals. So this is a legal document. We've got a legal contract that has, that has seals on it, and it's important because it has seven seals on it, which means that it, was, it wasn't just a notary. There were seven notaries that made sure that this thing was, was above board, right? So this is a binding, serious legal contract that he's got. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We've got a binding legal contract, and somebody says, hey, who, who's qualified to open this? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Uh, I'll just I'll give you some explanation here. This scroll represents the inheritance of creation. Who is worthy to be the master, the one to inherit 
all of creation. Everything earthly, everything spiritual, everything that has ever been made. Who is the one who is worthy to open the seal? Who is the executor of the will? Who is the one who can open this and begin to take responsibility for doling things out and making sure that they're supposed to go the way they're supposed to go? And John sees that this this will, this binding document for all of creation is held up and we have it here and we can see and we know the world is broken and we're looking for one who can fix it. And they say, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's, Who's able to set things the way that they are supposed to be to set things in order? And no one was found. And he weeps. This is bad news. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Sweet. Super cool. Now we've got a lion. There's going to be a lion in this, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. That means he's a descendant of, of Israel. He's a Hebrew, and he has conquered. Like, he has he's gone to death, and he's brought back the keys to the jail. Like, he's the guy who wins it. And this curtain kind of opens, and we get this picture in verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a... Wait a second. I thought we, his name is Lion. But I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. So there's a symbol of authority and a symbol of perception. So not only is he able to rule, but he's able to rule with knowledge. He sees things. He knows things. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the throne around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped john gets a vision of the future he gets a vision of heaven he gets a vision of the end of time he sees a lamb that was slain worthy to take the scroll the inheritance of creation jesus is the lamb Not only for those who observe Passover, he's made a tribe, or he's made, made a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Lamb's a king. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I know I, I'm one that has more occasion than most to spend time thinking about and participating in funerals. And I know it's something that we don't like to think about. There's going to come a day when you die. And if we can believe anything about Jesus at all, he says, my resurrection proves that I've made a way. And whether today you would say, I don't buy it, I don't get it, I've got doubts, I'm not really sure, or I hate that, like I hate religion, I don't want anything to do with it, like it's so manipulative and everybody's, everybody's angry all the time, or you're somebody who says, I want to believe it, but like I've been really wounded by people who were supposed to know better, like wherever we are with Jesus, I want you to know there will be a day where every voice that has ever come out of any person's mouth will look to Christ and say, he is the king of all creation. And you, can, you will bend a knee that day. Will you bend it in regret? Man, I missed it. It was right in front of me and I missed it and I was so wrapped up in myself and my baggage that I just, I, I walked away. Will you say, I knew it. It was the only thing that got me through those dark times. That hope, that, that, that pinprick of light on the horizon was the only thing that guided me home. And I can see it now. And I didn't understand any of the pain. And I didn't understand any of the brokenness. And I didn't know why these things were happening to me or to my family or to those people and those diseases. And I didn't understand it, but I'm seeing it now. And I get it. And it was part of your plan. And you are worthy. The next page over in chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from, or from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And I love John. Like John, he gets to see all these things and they get to talk with him. And I, I would be uncomfortable with that and I think he is uncomfortable with that. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Like one of these, these powerful beings in heaven looks at John and says, what's going on here? Uh, I was hoping you could tell me, actually. He says, uh, I said to him, sir, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Why? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's a lot in here. There's a lot to wrestle with. There's a lot of questions. But the thing that's clear is the lamb's desire is to be a shepherd, to care for a flock, and to wipe away tears. So if Jesus is the lamb, the only invitation I have this morning that makes any sense at all is will you come to him and bow your knee now? Not out of... um, Not out of fear or anger, but, but, but out of, like, he wants to care for me. He smells my prayers, is the picture in the, in the chapter before. Like, when I cry to him, he, he's aware of it. And his desire is to shepherd and lead and guide. And he's good, and he's trustworthy, and he's worthy, and I can walk with him today. Will we entrust our sorrow to Jesus? A man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief, a shepherd that wipes every tear from every eye. Let's pray together. Jesus, you know my struggles with even trying to articulate some of the things that you've revealed. And so, Lord, I ask that if there's anything that I've said that would be additionally confusing or wrong, um, that those things would be forgotten real quick. But, Lord, where your word is, that it would stand sure, that it would get a hold of our hearts and that it would not let go. lift up those of us who have walked with you a long time and maybe drifted uh, in our security to be unimpressed by you. And Lord, I pray that you would shine your majesty in our hearts and that you'd renew us. Lord, for those who are far away from you, within the sound of my voice, I pray that you would be drawing them to you. You know them, you created them, you formed them, and you want to be their shepherd. You want to walk with them and guide them. Renew and restore. pray that you just continue to introduce yourself to them. And Lord, as they shake hands with you, um, God, that they choose to embrace you, to hug you, to say, I don't get it. I don't understand all this lamb stuff and the blood seems kind of excessive, but, but I trust your heart. 
and I want to walk with you. down, submit ourselves for your inspection. Would you do the heart work in us that needs to be done this morning? It's in your name we ask. <laughs> in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.